Well, good afternoon. It's a pleasure to be with you guys and to be able to preach for you this afternoon. We're continuing in our study in Revelation, uh, where we come to the seventh of the seven letters to the churches. And we have this afternoon the letter to the church in Laodicea. Thus far, the letters have contained a variety of different themes to them. You've seen some very positive and encouraging words that have been given to various churches, as well as some frustration that the Lord has shown towards the lack of faith or towards the sinfulness and idleness of various churches. And here in Laodicea, much like the letter to the church in Sardis, we have predominantly negative language being used with regard to the church. There's not encouragement, or at least not explicit encouragement. It's a very harsh letter. And as a result of that, these warning passages being tending to be very difficult to work with, I want us to be very careful as we address this text this afternoon. Christians like to respond to warning passages or exhortative words in Scripture with this mindset of pull up your bootstraps, of do better, do more, try harder. That's the consistent, and maybe it's just in certain worlds, but that seems to be the consistent response. And I understand the response because warnings should cause us to examine ourselves carefully. An exhortation should drive us to action. But too often, the reader is inclined to turn in on themselves to bolster their willpower, to bolster their discipline, and to conjure up the strength to respond to the exhortation of the Lord. And so again, this afternoon, I want to be very careful as we address this text to see the full breadth of the warning in light of the very ordered structure of Christ's letter to the church in Laodicea. So turn with me to Revelation 3, verses 14 to 22. Revelation 3, verses 14 to 22, says this. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for the time that we have together, 
this afternoon to contemplate what it is that you are saying both to the church in Laodicea and to Christ's church throughout the ages. We pray that you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us an attentiveness, that you would help me to be clear, that we might walk away from this place with a better understanding of how it is that Christ is exhorting this church and Laodicea and what it means for us. Again, Lord, we thank you for this time together, and we ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Now, uh, briefly, some context. We've heard about the city of Laodicea before. It comes up in Colossians in chapter 2 and chapter 4. But a lot of what we know about Laodicea comes from extra-biblical history. We learn about Laodicea uh, geographically, that it was in Asia Minor, or modern-day Turkey, that it was in the Lycus Valley. It was actually very close to the city of Colossae, and also close to another city, Heropolis. But of the things that we do know about the city of Laodicea is that it sat on a central trade route in the Lycus Valley, the same trade route that Colossae sat on. And as a result of this very populous and well-traveled city, Laodicea was a vibrant city. It was a successful and prominent and wealthy city. Among maybe some of the more obscure things that we know about the city that maybe seem obscure, but they have relevance that we'll come to see, Laodicea was well known for a highly established banking system, and this contributed to their great wealth. Laodicea was also well known for their school of ophthalmology, or their school of medicine, particularly medicine that pertains to our eyes, to vision. And they were also well known for a particular wool, the Laodicean wool that comes from the sheep that was common to Laodicea and is still common there today. It's a black sheep with a rich and heavy, useful wool. So again, I say these seemingly arbitrary historical points I think will serve us well. But another thing that's important is that the city of Laodicea, as this well-traveled, as this wealthy, as this really proud city, this strong city, there was actually an earthquake in AD 60 or 60 AD, somewhere around there, that leveled the city. And it leveled cities nearby as well. This Earthquakes were pretty common in the Lycus Valley. And in 60 AD, Laodicea was completely decimated. And Rome at the time offered to send funds and to send help in order to rebuild the city of Laodicea. And the Laodiceans denied the help, saying of themselves, we have all of the resources that we need to handle this on our own. And Laodicea, denying Rome's help, rebuilt the entire city themselves. And so we get a little bit of a taste of what the context of of at least the city was that the Lord Jesus is speaking into. And it becomes more and more apparent that the economic success or that the ethos of the city in general had very much an influence on what it is that the Lord is addressing in the church and Laodicea. So this becomes a very pointed address that we'll see. But really what I want to focus on this afternoon, the main thing that I want to address is I want us to understand or to see in this particular letter how it is that the Lord Jesus addresses sin in his church. Very plainly, I want us to see how it is in this letter how the Lord Jesus addresses sin in his church. And we'll look at two specific points as we attempt to understand that. The first point is the sin itself 
the sin of the lukewarm church in verses 14 through 17. And the second is the gracious counsel of the Lord in verses 18 through 22. So let's start by looking at the first point in verses 14 through 17, rereading again, specifically verses 14 through 16. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you are either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Stop there. Like the other letters, it opens with a self-ascription of the Lord. It says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of self-ascription. The words of the Amen. Specifically here, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, and the beginning of God's creation. What's interesting about this is that these self-ascriptions potentially help us to understand some of the context. Like, he says, I am the Lord that is such and such. I am the Lord who is known by these names because of what it should help us to understand about the context of the situations that the Lord Jesus is writing into. And so we have the language of the amen, which is rather interesting because there's not another place where amen or the God of the amen is used in scripture except for in Isaiah chapter 65. It's the only other place where God refers to himself as the amen. And most English translations translate the amen to the God of truth, but the Hebrew word there is amen. It is amen. But if you look in Isaiah 65, I won't have you turn there for the sake of time, but in Isaiah 65, in verse 16, God is referenced as the God of the amen, and the context, that which follows it in verse 17, is the promise of the new creation. It is the promise of the new creation. And there's a pattern of the language, the use of God being the God of the Amen in Isaiah 65, that we see the same sort of pattern picked up again in Christ's letter to the church in Laodicea. He says, I am the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Now, some have thought maybe this just means the beginning of God's creation in the John chapter 1 sense. In the beginning, Christ is an active agent in creation. Then it could be, but I think it's more than that. Because there's another instance in actually Revelation 1, the first point that this language of faithful witness comes up in the book. And I'll read it really quickly if you want to turn there. Revelation 1 verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. And so, though this language is very specific, the beginning of God's creation, I think the point following various patterns in Scripture, as well as the pattern in Revelation chapter 1, is the beginning of God's creation, the creation that is being spoken of here is this new creation. The one who ushers in this new kingdom, this Lord of the new kingdom, the King of kings, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Paul uses that same language in Colossians 1.18. He references Christ as the beginning the firstborn from the dead. Strikingly, I think that these help us to understand, like I said, the content of the message that Christ has for the church in Laodicea. As if to say, not only do I rule over you, I am also the true and faithful firstborn of the many brothers. It's as if he opens this letter to display to the church what is lacking in them. 
you lack a true and faithful witness. You are lacking that which I am saying of myself perfectly. There's a sense you pick up that very easily, very clearly, that there seems to be some lack of maybe a reverent awe or an obedience towards their king, the faithful witness. And so it goes on to say in verse 15, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you were lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Many have interpreted this analogy as a strict reference to the state of the Laodiceans' faith, as if it dealt primarily and strictly with the fervor of their faith. And I get the appeal to that, but I think that it misses something, especially in that it would almost seem as though the Lord Jesus is saying that it would be better that you be cold in your faith, or if we think of cold and hot as maybe negative and positive, like this, a hot faith is a good faith in the context of the common interpretation. A cold faith would be a, a dead faith, really. And it's almost as if that's the case, Jesus is making the point that I would rather you be dead, which I don't think that that's the case. This is another instance where it's very helpful to know a little bit about the context of this city. As a vibrant and successful city, there was one particular thing that the city of Laodicea lacked, and that was a good water source. The city of Laodicea in the Lycus Valley was, like I mentioned, near Colossae and near Heropolis. And both Colossae and Heropolis were well known for their water sources. In Colossae, they had direct access to the Lycus River that ran through the valley. And as a result, they were known for their cold and refreshing water in the city of Colossae. And where Heropolis was built, there was a hot spring. And from this hot spring, they had access to hot water that had the typically the connotation of healing factors. There was comfort and there was a warmth. There was healing to hot waters. But where Laodicea sat, just south of Heropolis, they didn't have any direct access to water. And as a result, they had to pump in or via some aqueduct, they had to draw water from another source. And it seems as if they got their water from Heropolis, but that by the time that it came to them, it was lukewarm, it was tepid, it was dirty, and it was nearly undrinkable. In fact, one scholar, I think, gives a vivid picture of this analogy in his assessment. He says this, Did the eyes of listeners seek through door and window the distant view of the lime and sulfur-encrusted cliffs under Heropolis, where the plumes of steam told of hot pools and sickly insipid water seeping over the slimy rock, which the unsuspecting visitor drank only to spit on the ground. Such was their Christianity. And so I think this is helpful because when we consider this, the context of the Laodicean church, and the way Jesus very pointedly speaks into this church, especially as proud and successful people, the Laodiceans, he draws on that which they lack. And not only as just like a minor thing that they lack, but as a widely known detestable thing that they have. Their water was disgusting. What's interesting about the passage is that we, in most translations, say, I will spit you out of my mouth, is what we read Jesus saying. But the word most accurately translates to vomit. I will vomit you out of my mouth. 
that the state of the church in Laodicea was such that it was detestable to the Lord Jesus, such that as he tasted of them, he wanted to vomit. Again, I mentioned this is weighty language. This is the Lord Christ dealing with his church in the city of Laodicea. I don't know about you, but if it were ever said to me by the Lord that he wanted to vomit me out because of the state of my faith, because of the state of my witness to the world, because of the state of my spiritual well-being, whatever have you, that's a devastating word to hear from the Lord. But this is the truth. This is very vivid, and it only really gets weightier. This imagery is potent and weighty, and it should cause us to stop and examine ourselves. So again, I mentioned that what is the sin, our first point is what is the sin of the lukewarm church? And giving all of this context for the city, giving all of this context in terms of, of their wealth and all of the things that they have, all that is going for them, all that they are proud of, I think the sin of the Laodicean church is an arrogance that says, which we'll get to further in the text, an arrogance that says, I have no need. I have everything myself. I am proud. I don't need help. The sin of the Laodicean church is pride. And that's why when we read this, we need to be careful to examine ourselves because this is not just a sin that exists in a bubble, in a vacuum, in the city of Laodicea in the first century. This is a sin that transcends time and culture. This is a one that we readily commit and should regularly repent of. But he's not done. Look at verse 17. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. See, it finally gets comforting and encouraging after he tells them he'd vomit them out of his mouth. Really, though, this should be cause for serious reflection and sober judgment. This is how the Laodiceans saw themselves. As a result, the proud city that they lived in, the pagan, the idolatry, whatever the ethos of the city was, seemed to be rubbing off upon the church. Pride and self-sufficiency, to be lost in yourself, to glory in your own strength, to exult in your reputation, to have your heart and mind constantly turned in on itself, the satisfaction of your own achievements, you name it. This is the sin of the Laodicean city. This was their lukewarmness. But this brings me to my second point. Verses 18 to 22. What is the gracious counsel? If this is the sin of the lukewarm church in Laodicea, that which the Lord deals harshly with, that which he uses language that he would vomit them out of his mouth because of the detestable state that the church is in. How does he respond? The gracious counsel of the Lord is our second point in verses 18 through 22. Look at 18 again. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. 
At first glance, this text might look like it's just a continual of a heaping of shame and judgment, condemnation, really, upon this church in Laodicea. How would we possibly buy anything from the Lord? You just told us that we're poor. You just corrected us, rebuked us, and reproved us for our saying, we have everything, we have prospered, and we have no need. And you tell us to come and buy from you. How will we buy anything that the Lord himself offers us? How can we afford anything? But really, Jesus is using the source of their pride to draw them somewhere. At first glance, it looks like there's shame heaped on them. But remember those seemingly arbitrary historical points about the church in Laodicea. What were those things? They had their well-established banking system. They had their black wool from the Laodicean sheep, this ability to make great clothing out of this black wool that was highly sought after. And then they had their schools of medicine, specifically their school of ophthalmology. And what is it that Jesus is addressing in his counsel in verse 18? I counsel you to come buy from me gold refined by fire. White garments that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness. And I salve so that you may be able to see. He uses those things that the church was so proud of to say, stop, look away from yourselves and look to me. Come to me, buy from me. He's drawing their attention somewhere. And that's to himself. Look to Revelation 1 again. Chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. See this imagery come up again. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. Do you see the imagery he's portraying? Do you see where he is calling them in their sinfulness, in their pride, in their self-sufficiency? Do you see what he says to them? He's shaming what they glory in in order to draw them back to himself, the glory of Christ. But even then, this doesn't answer the question, how do they buy anything from the Lord? We're either looking at this or hearing this for the first time and thinking to ourselves, our options are to sorrow over our complete and utter inability to buy from him anything, or we attempt to gin up the means by our own strength, to purchase that which Christ sets forth. No, I won't have you turn there, but hear the words of the Lord in Isaiah chapter 55. I know you're familiar with this passage. Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 3. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, And without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. 
here, that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. He who has no money, come, buy. Buy without money and without price. Do you see what he is saying to them? He's not telling them to sorrow over their inability or to gin up the strength or to try harder or to pull up their bootstraps to do better. He's saying, come to me. Look to me. Verse 19 continues this gracious counsel. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Those whom I love, I discipline. What seems like a harsh rebuke of the Lord is potentially even a sure judgment of this church in Laodicea is actually a loving reproof, a loving rebuke of the Lord Jesus for his church, for the people whom he loves. This is a reiteration of Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, which says, My son, do not despise the discipline of the Lord or be wearied by his reproof. For the Lord reproves the one whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. See what loving foundation the Lord's rebuke for his church is built upon. The gracious counsel of the Lord is built upon Christ's love for his church. So be zealous and repent. He continues in verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. In other words, to the church, Christ says, hear the loving reproof as the spirit of repentance works in your hearts. And also the invitation to return to the one who has loved you, to the one who keeps you and dine with me. Sup with me, eat with me. Verse 21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Now, I don't intend to get into the details here because there's quite a bit to unravel, but for the sake of time, I just want you to know this. This is not a conditional invitation for the church. If you conquer, if you do this, you may live. Conquer and you may sit by me. As though he would say all that he has to say about exposing their nakedness, exposing their pride, exposing their sinfulness and inability, calling them to look to the one who loves them, just to send them back to this as some sort of covenant of works. Do this and live. I recommend, if you didn't make it to this morning's sermon, that you go back and listen, and that even if you made it this morning to hear the sermon in Genesis, that you go back and listen to it again. Because it's incredibly important that we understand these covenants. And it was a fantastic sermon. We know what I just said. We know this is true of the church because of what Philippians 1.6 tells us. That he who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He's not setting us up to be under a covenant of works again. He's not saying you need to conquer in order that you may sit with me. 
The author of Hebrews in chapter 12 references the same proverb that I mentioned that I read after his charge to run the race with endurance, fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And he wraps up the passage in verse 28 saying this, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Who then is the one that conquers? The one who runs with endurance. According to the strength that the Lord supplies, the one whose eyes are fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. People are often concerned, as I said at the outset, about how we're to understand warning and rebuke from the Lord. What do we do when the God of free grace tells us to act? If we do this or that, are we legalists? If we don't do this or we don't do that, aren't we antinomians? I'm not sure how to answer that. But I am sure that in our own narcissism, we're often missing the point. Hear plainly how the Lord deals with the sins of his church. He rebukes her error powerfully, potently, pointedly, and he bids her, look, look to me and come to me. Buy without money and without price. Know that I discipline you because I love you. You are mine. He calls us to introspection only long enough that we might be able to see the depth of our need. And then he calls us to turn our gaze to him from ourselves upon the glorious Christ so that we may see the glorious redemption that he offers in his life, death, and resurrection. He calls us to repent because we are children of God. So the Christian conquers, not of their own merit or strength, but in the strength and merit of the one who has conquered already. In the strength and merit of the one who has conquered sin and death in his life, death, and resurrection. We conquer because Christ conquered. We sit on his throne because Christ sits on his Father's throne. That is the basis for our comfort. The one who is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God says, Be zealous and repent. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the letter to the church in Laodicea and for how pointedly it speaks into our own sins, into our own lives, and into our own context. Father, we repent, for we are sinful beyond measure. And we know how often and how quickly we are inclined to turn to pride, to self-sufficiency, to looking for satisfaction in anything but you. 
to worship the creation rather than the creator. Forgive us, Lord. But help us to see as we grieve and sorrow for our sin, this great love with which you have loved us. This love that is the basis and the foundation for your loving rebuke of your church in Laodicea and throughout the ages. Help us to see, rather than sorrowing over our own sinfulness to the point of defeat, rather than trying to accomplish something of our own strength, trying to do better, to try harder, to do more, help us to look to your Son, to behold him in all of his glory and splendor. May we, your church, be a people whose lives are shaped by the glory of Christ whose lives are shaped by our adoration of our triune Lord. Help us to know what is the height and length and width and breadth of that love of God that surpasses all understanding. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.